Even to your old age, I shall be the same. Even to your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it. I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. Father, we're thankful that you are not the God of only the years of our youth, but of all of the years of our lives. And the more years you give us, the more we cherish the fact that you have loved us and you have showed mercy upon us and you have drawn us to yourself. We're so grateful that we can look forward to that day when we will stand in your presence and the pain and the suffering and the shame of this life will be gone. And Father, we pray that in the meantime, you will keep us faithful to the calling that you've given to each one of us, that we will not only live each day for you, but we will be an example to others that we will be truly prayers on behalf of your kingdom. We ask you to bless us here today, to guide us in our study of your word, and we ask that as your word is proclaimed this day, you will draw, even as you have said in your word, those unto yourself that you have chosen, that your word will not go forth void, but will bring the purpose for which you sent it. And we trust in you for that this day in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read again beginning at verse 7 and moving from there. Judges 9, 7. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit to go and wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Finally the trees said to the bramble, You come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity with a, in making Abimelech king, and you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men, on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Millo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Millo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer and remained there because of Abimelech his brother. Interesting little story. Again, remembering that this Abimelech was the 
son of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, by a concubine. And he had 70 half-brothers who were apparently sons of Gideon's many wives. In order to have 70 sons, he did have to have quite a few wives. And when Abimelech decided that he wanted to rule over Israel, he went to the home, his hometown, where his mother was born and where his mother was living and where his family was. And he went there and he told them, wouldn't you rather have me your relative rule over you than the 70 sons of Jerubbabel who live up in the area of Ophrah? And of course, nobody had said that the 70 sons were interested in ruling over Israel. So the people there in Shechem, the elders of the city, anointed this Abimelech person as king over them and by definition over Israel. Jotham, the youngest of the sons, had somehow escaped the massacre of the 70 sons that Abimelech had brought about. And he comes now to give us this, this prophetic parable that we read here about the trees, about the trees who, who asked the olive tree to reign over them, then the fig tree, then the vine, and finally turned to the bramble. What is interesting about this is that the olive tree bore fruit, something valuable. The fig tree bore fruit, something valuable. The vine bore fruit, something valuable. What did the bramble do? Bramble was a weed. Bramble bore no fruit. Bramble had nothing else to do is the implication here. What did the bramble have to do? Nothing. What did he have to give? Nothing. So he was glad to become king. The others had other things to do and were not interested in becoming king. So this is the, <laughs> the little uh, prophetic parable that Jotham gives as he stands up on the slopes of Gerizim and, and yells it down into the kind of the amphitheater there between Ebal and Gerizim and where the city of Shechem was located. So as we look at verse 16 and following of this passage, we have the meaning, or I should say the interpretation. The meaning was pretty clear. So the interpretation then is what is significant here. What, what is the application of this parable? Well, Jotham says there in this passage as we read it, that if they had sincerely chosen Abimelech as king, in other words, they'd searched their hearts and they had determined this is the most worthy man, and if they had treated Gideon's family with integrity, then their relationship, that is, between the Shechemites and Abimelech should be one of rejoicing. But he makes a parenthetical statement here in the midst of this passage. And he, he reminded them that Gideon had literally risked his life to save them from the hands of Midian, and he had saved them from the hands of Midian. And what was his reward? The slaying of his 70 sons by this very man, Abimelech. So, of course, as he goes on and, and rather repeats what he had said earlier, he is doing it with great scorn in his voice. And, and he says that if they had chosen Abimelech with sincerity, which obviously they had not, because they would have chosen the best man, and obviously Abimelech was not the best man. Why did they choose him? Because he was their relative. That's why. And then he said, and uh, had you, you know, if you've treated Gideon's family with integrity, obviously slaying the 70 sons of Gideon, has a certain lack of integrity to it, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, therefore, if all of this were true, they should rejoice. But then he comes on in verse 20 with a voice of doom, voice of judgment. You know, this passage does not say specifically, and the Lord appeared to Jotham and gave him this message. But as you read through the message, and as we read through the remaining portion of this chapter, and we see what happens, we know it was God who spoke through Jotham. He had to 
uh, have the mind of the Lord in this because where would he get this parable and, and where would he understand really how it would turn out except it were from God. And so he utters a curse here, a curse of destruction upon the men of Shechem and their defensive tower, Beth Milo, and upon Abimelech. <laughs> and then, if you, I don't know if you can picture this, here he is, he gives all this, and he finally gives the, the uh, interpretation, and boy, he's out of there. <laughs> he's out of there. He takes off around the mountain over the, the other side of it because he knows that once these guys who've been kind of mesmerized because, you know, all Israelites loved a story, and so they were listening to this thing. And, but when the interpretation became quite clear to them, suddenly everybody was a bit upset, and uh, he knew that they would launch out after him, so he, you know, he, he split out of there. And he took off over to the other side of the mountain. We don't know directly what, uh, what direction he ran in, but certainly he ran opposite Shechem, you know, uh, away from them. Fortunately, in those days, there were no helicopters, no Humvees, or, you know, anything else to chase him with. Everybody else was on foot, too. And uh, he was young. He was the youngest of the 70 sons, so he probably could kick up his heels. And so, anyway, he, he took off. We're told in the passage that he fled to beer. Now, beer doesn't mean what we interpret beer to mean, even though it's close. It means a well, a well or a, or a cistern. <laughs> what we're going to find out in the, in the next part of the passage is some people flee not to beer, but to wine, and it leads to some big trouble. He, he flees to a place called beer. Well, there were many wells and many cisterns in the land of Israel. So there isn't any way of knowing where he fled to, except, as I said, probably to the southwest, directly away from the city of Shechem and into the, or to one of the many places where there were wells or cisterns or whatever. You, uh, the name Beer is attached to several sites uh, in Israel. It, certainly he didn't flee to Beersheba, which was a very long ways away from, from where he was at this particular time. So anyway, if you can kind of picture this scene here, and you can just imagine the reaction now in the city of, of Shechem, uh, because they have just coronated this guy, Abimelech, and this is being uh, said to be folly, in, a, in effect. Let's read on the next uh, uh, section here, verse 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, in order that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road. And it was told Abimelech. We're seeing behind the scenes now. Again, as we're told in Ephesians, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers spiritual forces of darkness. And uh, in this passage, we're seeing, of course, where the people of Shechem are rising up against Abimelech here and beginning to cause trouble. And of course, to them, it's just a, a feeling of an emotion, a desire to get rid of this guy, uh, certain physical things they're doing. But the passage tells us in verse 23 that God sent an evil spirit. So we're seeing behind this now into the spiritual realm, which is the real motivating world. All of these great tragedies in the world today, which involve human destruction and, and hate, are um, motivated by evil powers. It's interesting, uh, kind of not beside the point, but 
illustrative maybe. This last night, um, while we were taking a break and some of the things we were doing, we looked a little bit at The Century, you know, that program that comes on uh, with Peter Jennings. And they had the section last night, some of you may have seen it, uh, having to do with Martin, Martin Luther King in Memphis and where he was assassinated there in Memphis in 1968. And just going back through that again, I mean, I can hardly remember 1968, partly because we were in South America when all that was happening, so it was kind of, you know, we were separated, insulated from it. But um, to, to look at the tragedy of how the black people were being treated in Memphis at that time, I mean, just being reminded of that, just and often in the name of the Lord. Oh, yeah, you know, we're good Christians. We just don't want these black people around because they bring bad stuff into our society. And to realize that, I mean, there were evil spirits there. I mean, if any place is full of evil spirits, they were everywhere there because there was terrible hatred there that was stirred up. And here, here, here would be preachers, and uh, they were supporting this, this um, oppression of the blacks in the, quote, the name of the Lord. Well, you know, there was an evil spirit there. That wasn't the Lord's spirit at all. And so as you look down through the course of history, you can see through the eyes of Scripture and through the eyes of the Spirit of God how the demonic forces have been working throughout history and causing these great tragedies that have happened, small and large. So Jotham's prophecy was not, did not take place right away. And, and certainly Abimelech and the Shechemites kind of kicked back, well, you know, three years ago that kid was up there yelling, look, we're all fine, you know. I'm sure they even began to forget it. Verse 22 of this passage tells us that Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. There is nowhere in Scripture where he is acknowledged as a king of Israel. I think, therefore, we have to see this as his power being limited to northern Israel, or probably even less than that, maybe to more, no more than the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and maybe no more than Manasseh. Uh, it was the Shechemites who unilaterally chose him as king. Now, he's not dwelling in Shechem through this account that we'll be reading here, so he's somewhere else, so obviously others must have acknowledged him as king. But he is not considered to be Israel's first king. Saul is. Therefore, his, his, his authority was, was relatively limited. An unusual word is actually used here for ruled, not the normal word which is used here. And the word that, you, that is used here seems to imply despotism, that he was a tyrannical ruler. And if you look down through the pages of history, you will find that many times worthless men who come to power rule more tyrannically than anybody else ever would. I mean, it's out of self-defense, usually, they do that. Because a man of great wisdom, Plato, Plato in his Republic, argued that the best form of government was to have a philosopher king, somebody whose head was just full of, the, of human philosophy, and then as king, he would be a very wise king. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure Plato was kind of hinting, maybe, that here I am, I'm a great <laughs> philosopher, you know. <laughs> And I'm known as Plato, which means broad-shouldered. I can handle everything, you know. But worthless men often rise up. And in order to hold power, they have to rule, first of all, capriciously. They generally do not have a program. They rule selfishly for their own ends. And they often rule mercilessly. They, they just deal with any opposition, just... And that apparently was the kind of person Abimelech was. Well, somebody who starts out by murdering his 70 half-brothers. You have to have a little question about his integrity, that is for sure. 
What this did, of course, was to create disaffection between the Shechemites and Abimelech, and it allowed the foothold for this evil spirit. The Hebrew, word which, the Hebrew words here, which are translated as evil spirit, do not mean just a bad feeling here. You know, some kind of a dark cloud floated in. It literally means demon. Now, we think of demons as being under Satan's rule, and they are. But God is sovereign in this universe, and if God wants to use a demon, God can use a demon. And probably that demon doesn't even know God's using him. And so this demon comes floating in to carry out God's will. This evil spirit was sent to punish Abimelech and the Shechemites for their treachery, for, their, for how they had dealt with Gideon's family. Now, of course, it was Abimelech and his goons that actually were responsible for the murder of Gideon's 70, did I say Gideon? Abimelech and his goon squad was responsible for the death of the 70 sons of Gideon. The Shechemites, however, are also responsible. First of all, because those goons were all Shechemites. The, the scripture, you remember, I mentioned that the scripture said they were worthless riffraff. You know, people who were just hanging around the city with nothing to do but cause trouble. And second of all, it is because the Shechemites got the money out of their temple of their God to finance Abimelech, who used that money to hire the goon squad to go and kill his 70 brothers. And so what did the Shechemites do when the word came back what he did, about what he did? Did they punish him? No, they made him king. Talk about foolish. Talk about treacherous. You all remember that in the book of Genesis, several thousand years before this time, God said to Cain, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the soil. If that were true of Cain's slaying of Abel, can we imagine how true it was of the, 70, of the blood of the 70 sons of Gideon who had been massacred by this Abimelech? Seventy voices, in effect, you know, is crying out from, from the soil for, for vengeance. As I was thinking about this this morning, in Jeremiah, let me read a, just a brief passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, uh, 17, we read these verses, and of course most of us are familiar with verse 9, but I like to read 9 through 11, Jeremiah 17, 9 to 11. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that hatches eggs which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. In, in the end, he will be a fool. There are numerous passages in Scripture which teach us of the judgment that befalls the wicked, of those who do unrighteously, treacherously, uh, those who oppress the poor, those who harm widows and orphans. And it all goes back to verse 9. The heart of mankind is deceitful. If you were listening this morning to uh, Lutzer on the radio, he was talking about being in a taxi cab and talking about the fact that he was a Christian, he was riding with this cab driver, and 
uh, the cab driver re responded back to him, well, he says, I've never sinned in my life. <laughs> and Luther says, you, you've never sinned in your life? Oh, no, I've never sinned in my life. And so, I, you know, I don't need redemption. And <laughs> he says, well, you've never lusted for a woman? He, oh, he says, that's not a sin. <laughs> so suddenly, you know, the definition of sin becomes the crucial point here. You know? I guess sin is, is flat-out murder and flat-out rape, and, uh, you know, but the Scripture goes all the way back to the mind and the heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Uh, I remember years ago listening to a passage or to a, to a message that John MacArthur was preaching in, and uh, he keeps coming back to this, he says, because anytime you begin to feel a little bit inflated about yourself, you just come back to this passage and it pulls you right back down to where you belong, you know. Because no matter how closely we follow the Lord, in our flesh we are desperately wicked. And that's what Abimelech has, has purely demonstrated. An unregenerate heart. A man who is, has no time for Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so he's desperately wicked. In fact, as we read through this passage, uh, other than, than possibly Jotham, who, you know, we're not told much about him, we're looking at a bunch of desperately wicked people here. And, you know, it just gives us a real sense of what mankind without God's presence is. And anybody who thinks that missionaries have spoiled the idyllic civilizations of these people off in primitive areas where they've been living in, in this kind of uh, uh, Shangri-La for all these centuries have no conception of how horrible life is for these people. I remember when the Baleem Valley was first opened up, and they called it Shangri-La back in the heart of New Guinea. How these people were living in such wonderful, blissful, Stone Age life. Yeah, but when you get in there and you read books like Don Richardson's books, Lords of the Earth and Peace Child and everything, you find out these, these people live a life that is full of fear and tragedy and horribleness all the time. I mean, it's animal life. It's not at all idyllic. This idealism goes all the way back to the Enlightenment when you had men like Rousseau and Thomas Jefferson and others who, who painted the primitive lifestyle as, as being uh, the best form of life. And, and people are their, most, uh, their best when they're primitive. And, and it has nothing to do with reality. It has to do with the pipe dream. That's why there was such a big discussion about the American Indian. There were some in America, in, in, when the government was first formed, who said the, you know, the best Indian is a dead Indian on one side, and the other side was, hey, leave them alone. They're living an idyllic life. We shouldn't bother them. Uh, they're a better example than we are, and this kind of thing. So there was a schism there. Well, when you go <laughs> to what we're reading about here, in uh, Jeremiah, we discover there is no idyllic existence on this planet. Shechem, the city, stood at a strategic point. It stood on a route that connected the Via Maris, the main route along the coast, with a ridge route in the interior. And that route went right between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Well, Shechem happened to sit astride that route near where the canyon between the two mountains passed through the area. And so it was an ideal place for them to set up ambushes and to rob caravans and travelers going through that area. Why was this a, an affront to Abimelech? Because it discredits his government. It's like today, if, uh, if a riot breaks out, who gets blamed? The mayor of the city, the governor of the state, you know. Uh, some tragedy occurs, it's the president's fault. 
And so as, as these people are being attacked and there's no defense for them, who gets the blame? Abimelech, hey, where's your govern? And on top of that, the Shechemites were the people who appointed him king in the first place. They're his principal supporters. Shouldn't they be supporting Abimelech? Shouldn't they be defending these people rather than attacking these people? Again, this goes back to the desperately wicked heart concept. These are the very people to whom Abimelech is related who chose him as king and now they are stabbing him in the back. Backstabbing is the normal human condition. If we aren't stabbing somebody in the back openly, we're stabbing him in the back behind the scenes verbally, you know. Or we're thinking stab in the back thoughts, you know, whatever it is. We're constantly tearing, the normal human condition is to tear everybody else down and build ourselves up. You know, as, as Shirley MacLaine stood out on the beach and said, I am God, that's really the, you know, that's, she's stating the truth in, in the sense of the human view of things. You know, I'm God. I'm the God of my little world. And uh, there's no room for the God of the universe in there because he demands that we humble ourselves before him. And we have every reason to humble ourselves before him because he is almighty and, and we are finite. So Abimelech's name and reputation was being harmed. His government was being challenged by this lawlessness that he was not able to deal with. Well, wherever Abimelech was headquartered at that particular moment, we'll discover where he was in the next passage, the word of this brigandage finally reached him. But before he could react and do anything about it, he faced open rebellion. And that's what we read about in the next passage here, beginning at verse 26. Now, Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives, literally brothers, and crossed over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyard and trod, trod them and had a festival, held a festival. And they went into the house of their god, which is Baal Bareth, and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. <laughs> then Gael, the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and is Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would therefore that this people were under my authority. Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. And when Zebul, the leader, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. And he sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, meaning actually means secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall come about in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. Whatever happened to just average normal life, huh? Just going out in your field, doing your thing, coming back, having, you know, playing with your kids, kissing your wife goodnight, you know, getting up in the morning, going out in the field. <laughs> in this passage, we see further the fulfillment of Jotham's prophetic parable here. Gale, the, main, the name means loathing, kind of fits this guy in some ways. He blows into town with his freebooters, his his brothers here, which probably doesn't necessarily mean all literally blood brothers, but he's got this little band. He's a, well, Delich in his commentary calls him a knight errant. That is a knight who goes around causing trouble. And, and so you, you kind of think of him as maybe a Douglas Fairbanks 
junior or senior kind of guy, you know, like a Robin Hood running around, on the, not on the good side, on the bad side in this particular case. Uh, nothing else to do. We know nothing about him. All we're told is he's the son of Ebed, which doesn't tell us anything because, well, it does tell us one thing. Ebed means servant, so it could mean that he was the son of a no-account person of some sort. We don't know. But apparently he was a well-known mercenary. Apparently the people Shechem knew about this guy because it says that when he arrived in town, they put their trust in him. You know, some guy blows into town with a gang of hoods. Are, are you going to meet and say, oh, good, you know, we want you instead of Abimelech. Right. No, I don't think so. They must have known something about him. His, his fame or his notoriety preceded him. He was probably known to be somebody who caused trouble in the general area of northern Israel. What is interesting is he arrived right at the time of the grape harvest. I don't think it was any accident. He arrives right when they're harvesting the grapes because that's when they have a festival. Aha, festivals. Nice to be there at time of festival. This is early summer. Early summer, he, he arrives there in Shechem with his gang. And he, he certainly knew, as, as probably everybody in the neighborhood knew, that at the time of grape harvest, the people of Shechem always held a great festival to their god, Baal Bareth, and that they would go into the temple and they'd really hoop it, hoop it up. And so they came to help them celebrate. Oh, we're here to help you celebrate. And you'll share your wine with us, right? And so anyway, they, when they finished uh, making the new wine, uh, they got out the old wine, you know, and they began to celebrate the new wine that was in the process of fermenting. And the normal swagger of this guy and his crew was accentuated by his inebriation. And he and the others begin to curse Abimelech. Curse Abimelech. It's pretty easy to get everybody together to curse somebody, isn't it? Now, if we really wanted to get together and, and really think badly about somebody here today, let's say somebody far away, somebody like the president of the United States or something like that, we, we probably could generate quite a... Quite a you know, a few people who could say, well, you know, certain things about this guy that we don't particularly like. Not hard to do, especially amongst non-believers, which, of course, all these people are. Well, they believed in Baal Bareth, whatever good that did. Gale here becomes so emboldened that he challenges Abimelech's authority. Now, his words accorded there in verse 28 seem to be a bit confused, and probably they were given his condition. But what he was trying to do was to goad the Shechemites. That he, you know, he's here with the Shechemites and they're having a good time together. And he's trying to goad them into revolting against Abimelech and against Abimelech's appointed governor of the city, whose name is Zebul. Now, we don't know much about Zebul except for the fact that his name meant lofty. And it was the name of a god in Canaan in earlier centuries kind of the high and lifted up one. So here was this guy. He's got the name of a, of a former Canaanite god, which didn't seem to be worshipped at this particular time. It's like naming somebody today Zeus or something, you know. I don't know anybody who's done that, but maybe over in Greece somebody has. I don't know. His, his proclamation here that they should serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, may mean that the descendants of the Hivite king Hamor still lived in the city and that they were the main perpetrators of the worship of Baal Bareth. Now remember, if you go all the way back to the early days in which Shechem is first known, you know, Abraham spent time at Shechem, Je uh, Jacob spent time at Shechem. And when Jacob arrived there, you remember we read back in Genesis why Hamor was the king and his son, 
who was, for whom the city was named, or vice versa, whichever, took off after Jacob's daughter Dinah and raped her. And the reaction of the two older, uh, two, not the two older, bro- two of the older brothers, Simeon and Levi, was that uh, this isn't a good thing. And so they end up massacring all the males of the city. Well, there, there could have been that there were people who were of the Hivite tribe who lived in and around Shechem, survived and, and were still here at the time, part of the population. Because you remember, as you read in the scripture here, they did not chase all the Canaanites out, but they accommodated themselves with many of them and lived amongst them. He also seems to have meant here, though, that they should be serving their traditional elders rather than this Johnny-come-lately upstart guy named Abimelech. And then just to emphasize the fact that Abimelech wasn't worthy of their trust, he said, remember, he's the son of Jerubbabel. And you remember what Jerubbabel did? Where did he get the name Jerubbabel? He tore down the altar of Baal. And this is a kid of that guy. So you can't really trust him, even though he claims to, to worship as you do. Maybe in his heart he's looking for the opportunity to destroy your Baal too. Anyway, this guy Gale is really creating a lot of stir here. He, he, he has a lot of drunken bravado. And he is boasting here that if he were in authority, he would get rid of Abimelech. When I read that, this verse came into my mind. I'll just read it to you and you don't have to try to turn to it, but... In uh, 1 Kings chapter 20, one of the few things that Ahab said that's worth quoting, (laughs) Ahab was in contest with the king of uh, Aram, uh, Syria, whose name was, or whose title was Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad was going to come out and cream Ahab, supposedly. So Ahab, well, Ben-Hadad said to Ahab, May the gods do so to me and more if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And Ahab says to him, says to the messenger, Tell him, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. In other words, don't count your chickens before they're hatched, we would say today. And Gale would have been well served to have heeded such a thing, you know, to say, hey, if I were king, I'd get rid of this guy Abimelech. Well, if you've read this passage further, you know (laughs) that isn't what happens. Abimelech is destroyed, but not by Gale. So what is he doing? He's throwing down the gauntlet to Abimelech. He knows this word will get to Abimelech. And so he's saying, get your army together, Abimelech, and come on over, because I'm going to destroy you. Well, Zebul, who apparently was not at this drunken feast, to his credit, he was back running the government of the city, apparently. It could be that he didn't want to be associated with Gale in any way in case word got back to Abimelech that his governor was over here hobnobbing with this, with this freebooter. And so somebody carried the word back to Zebul of what was going on in this festival. Well, Zebul was ticked when he heard what was happening there. Now, why would it disturb him? Well, because his job was in jeopardy, right? If Abimelech did get defeated and overthrown, well, bye-bye job, you know, because he'd been loyal to Abimelech, he'd probably be kicked out of power. So he is very concerned about this thing. Well, people who were siding with Gale apparently were around when he decided he needed to get a message to Abimelech. That is why the passage says that he sent a messenger deceitfully, literally secretly, to Abimelech. Now, what is interesting about this message 
It's, it's not your normal message in, in many ways. He says, he, he says in verse 31, he sent messengers saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives, his, his hoods are here, have come to Shechem. And behold, they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, <laughs> he's instructing his king, Arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall come about in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him came out against you, you, you shall do them whatever you can. So he's kind of given his, his king uh, the method of how you can deal with this guy. And, and I think he's implying that I'll, I'll help it out. And when we get into the next passage, which we won't get to today, but we'll discover that uh, he does play a role in, uh, in seeing that Gale uh, receives his due recompense. Abimelech was not far away, actually. In verse 41, we're told that he was at Aruma. Aruma was a town, a small town, about six miles or so away from Shechem to the southeast, in the hill country, uh, as, as Shechem is. And so it didn't take the messengers very long, you know, trot on over there. How, how long does it take you to cover six miles over a rough road? We should be able to do it in a couple of hours without breaking too much of a sweat, even. So he, he got the message uh, fairly quickly. What was his response? Well, he heeded the words of Zebul. You got to come, and you better come at night. You better come secretly, and you better take this guy by surprise. Well, I don't think that Abimelech waited very long. He didn't want Gael to get word that, that he was really coming. He didn't want Gael to really get totally <laughs> out of being drunk, probably. But primarily, he didn't want Gale to be prepared to be able to set up battle array or, or to call in reinforcements. And so I think he got his men together and probably within 24 hours from re receiving the message, he was on the, on the way, on the march. And of course, it wouldn't take him very long to get there either. He could probably get there in a couple hours, so he probably took off in the early hours of the morning so that he could be in place before sunrise uh, there outside the city of Shechem. So under the cover of darkness, Abimelech brings his army. We have no idea how big the army was. It does not say. It just calls, calls them as companies or literally under heads, uh, sub-commanders. And uh, he brings his forces up to deal with Gale. Now, you know, Gale comes with this literally brothers. Uh, what is this, a band of 20 people, 40 people, 100 people? We don't know. It's probably a fairly small band. So we're not dealing with big numbers here. This isn't like Gideon attacking 135,000 Midianites here. It's a small-scale thing, but it's going to be a big deal relative to what happens next, which we will uh, look at next week. We go down uh, to verse 34 and uh, read about what happens between Abimelech and Gale and how Zebel plays a role in this, and what in the world does this have to do with anything that's important to us? You know? Well, we'll talk about that uh, next Sunday.